are listening to the Slash and Cast Podcast Network. Enjoy the show. <laughs> All right, folks, Justin here with a quick word before we dive in. I think I've mentioned several times on several other shows, maybe to Stephen Williams. Yeah, it was probably to Stephen Williams that when I was a kid and my dad used to go work at the plant, it was my job to record the new episode of X-Files. So I basically just wore out a single VHS as far as I could and re-recorded the new episodes on them. So the X-Files is pretty much ingrained into my childhood. So getting the chance to talk to Mr. William B. Davis here is, whew, let's just say, a milestone for young Justin. So in this episode, I get the chance to chat with Mr. Davis about the X-Files, of course, his acting methods, radio drama, theater, and his new book on life and acting. So without further ado, folks, the truth is out there. and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> Just to get started here, William, so we have a sort of platform to jump off. Take us back in time to when you were a child. What sort of books were you reading? What were you creatively into? Were you building forts? You know, what's the scoop? <laughs> uh, you mean when I wasn't smoking under the uh, <laughs> under the bridge? <laughs> right, right, right. Before my mother's cigarettes. Before the smoking you know, days. So there was that. Oh my, that's a long time ago. In those days, it was kind of fun because we actually got out to play a lot. You know, we made up our own games. The the backstage, of the back garden or backyard of our house. My mother, I, I don't know what she was thinking of. She planted flowers around the outside of the backyard. And it was the, for us, it was a baseball diamond. So what are you doing? Putting flowers in the outfield of a baseball diamond. I mean, she eventually gave up. We played our baseball and we fought over the rules. And we we didn't do a lot of organized activities. We did a lot more do-it-yourself stuff. Were you into comics or anything back then? Did you start oh doing my, things creatively? Oh my, oh my God, did we ever have comics? And speaking of my mother, when I went to England to study theater, she threw out my comic collection. Oh, no. <laughs> which would be worth hundreds of thousands now, I think. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, mothers, they just don't understand. <laughs> so yes, did a lot of comics. Even, you know, we even played uh, pop music on 
78 records. So that goes back a ways. Just It just so happened that my, my cousins ran a theater company, a summer theater company, in the basement of our house. At least that's when they rehearsed. One day they needed a boy of about my age and for a play they were doing. And, uh, well, I was handy. So here, Bill, you do this. The rest is history, as they say. <laughs> the rest is history, definitely. Is. I see that you were involved in uh, radio dramas really young. How, how was that as a kid? I still listen to those old radio dramas to this day. That's one of my favorite that, pastimes. Yeah, that, I mean, that was my big introduction. Once I'd done this play, then I got a, an acting teacher, and they recommended me to the CBC for auditions for radio drama. And for two or three years, while my voice had not broken... I did quite a lot of radio drama of all kinds. We did shows for kids. I did a, a mental health series. It was like a drama series for a couple of years. But radio drama was, it was so different from anything you would do now because everything was live. We went straight from the studio into your living room. So, you know, if there was an orchestra for the big dramas, the orchestra was right there in the neighboring studio. The producer was cueing the uh, orchestra, then cueing us, and we had to be right there at the microphone at the right time. It was quite an experience. And you said that's, that's a headache environment to kind of break your teeth in on? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Years later, I went back to produce radio drama, and it was so different because it was then like film, and we produced bits and pieces. We edited it. We added music later we added sound effects later the way you make a movie but when i was a kid and we were doing radio drama it was right there live so have you done any radio work since those days of producing a little bit not too recently i did before a handmade sale became a big success on television we did a radio version in toronto and they, they actually flew me in to play the commander in that but i think that's the last radio drama that i did okay There's not much of it going on these days right as i was looking into your background it's just weird because we actually are working on a radio drama right now ourselves with voice actors we've spoken to and previous actors it was just a weird little coincidence i thought yeah that's good <laughs> yeah you know it's it's it seems like it's maybe making a comeback it's not called radio drama it's called audio drama. audio drama yeah you're right yeah, it's exactly. audio drama <laughs> yeah no that's good that's great when did your focus sort of shift from acting to directing that i know that happened while you're in college but what was the reasoning for it it happened kind of accidentally as so many things in my life seem to have i had a friend when i was in my second year i think and he wanted to direct to play and he had a space in a festival that was coming up but he'd never directed before he'd done a lot of assistant directing mm -hmm. so he wanted help with from someone who'd done a fair a fair bit of but by then i'd done quite a bit of acting but i hadn't directed anything so he asked me to help him so i said sure i'd love to and i i don't actually still to this day know what happened to him but he disappeared and i ended up directing the play and it was very successful and i loved doing it then i got more offers on campus to do more plays that were continuing to be successful and it appealed to me because it felt like work at that time in my life acting i really didn't understand acting i was just playing now i've written a book about it but at the time it was just um, you just sort of do it whereas directing seemed to be like real work and that gave me a lot of satisfaction and now i'm going back finally to acting and saying oh that's real work would you say you have a preference between the two if you had to choose that you enjoy one more than the other uh, generally i say i enjoy directing more than acting but so much depends on the context right now 
now we're working on a uh, small production of Pinter's play, No Man's Land. And I'm playing Spooner, the part that John Gielgud created. And it is so challenging and so fascinating that it's just completely absorbing. But sometimes, you know, you act in, on film or you act on television and you spend most of your time waiting. Whereas when you're directing, you're on all the time, especially in the theater. Not so much in film, because still when you direct on film, you're at least on for every shot. But there's all that wait time while they set up the next shot due to lighting. Da, 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 da. So it seems what keeps me busiest, I guess, is what I like the best. I see, I see. So does your approach differ whether you're on stage or on screen? What I often say about film acting is that you have to do a lot of the work that a stage actor gets to do in rehearsal. You have to do at home. You have to do it on your own. Mm. So you have a, a different level of preparation as a film actor. And it's, you know, it's, it's, there's mixed blessings. I mean, obviously in the theater, you have to be loud enough to be heard, et cetera, et cetera. In film, sometimes some actors are so quiet, I can't even hear them talking because the microphone does the work. So you don't have that vocal pressure. You also have the, uh, that intimacy sometimes that, that you're really close, except there's a catch to that. Because so often when you think you're really close, the other actor actually is not there or they're standing behind somebody or there's, right. you know, you really got on somebody's eye line. Where Whereas on stage, they're actually there. This is all really happening right now in real time. I love those film directors that actually create scenes, but like they're usually two shots or whatever. And the scene is really happening as you see it. So they're not reacting to the cue they heard when the other person did their coverage. They're reacting to what I, as the audience, am seeing right now. Would you say that since you started as an actor, that your time as an actor has helped you in the directing chair sort of work with actors? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That was actually kind of how I started into actor training was after, you know, we talked about my beginning as a director at university. And then I went on to study acting in London, not so much because I thought I was going to be an actor, but because as a director, I wanted to know more about what the actor does. And then I've continued to explore what does the actor do? And that's continued to be absorbed into what I do as a director. So how did we get from, I know you got your theatrical start in Canada. If my timeline's off here, feel free to correct me. How did you get to the National Theatre of Great Britain? Well, I went from University of Toronto. I spent one year kind of freelancing after I graduated. And then the year after that, I went to London and studied at Lambda, one of the major theatre schools in London. And then when I finished my year there, I wrote 40 letters, I think, to every rep company I could find in the country, offering myself as a director. I got 10 replies, four meetings, and one job. <laughs> and from there, I went to Chesterfield, which is in the Midlands of England, as a, as a director. And then from there, I went to the Dundee Rep after that as a director, and then back to London doing some teaching and then, well, and quite a bit of directing in other theatre companies, and then ended up at the National Theatre. So what would you say are some of the primary differences between working on theater in Canada and the UK? The differences probably aren't that significant now. What's significant, the big difference is, is the time scale, not so much the geography. What we were doing when I was in England, which is in the 60s, they had theater companies in almost every town in the country. And they did plays over and over and over again. Some did them once a week, a new play every week, some every two weeks some once a month. So 
my year in Dundee, for instance, I directed, I think, over 20 plays in one year. And now a director is lucky to direct one or two plays a year, even as a beginning director. So the ability to get mileage is uh, a lot different now. But what it's actually like to actually do a play in England and or to do a play in Canada really will depend on the theater and how much time they have. And But the actual process won't be that different. Gotcha. Well said. So during your time on stage as an actor, what were some of your favorite roles to play personally? First one that comes to mind was when I was in Chesterfield. I'd gone there as the director right after theater school, but I acted in a couple of the plays. And one of them was Much Ado About Nothing. And I played Don John, who's the villain. And this was my first real exposure to playing a villain. I did what seemed obvious to me. I made him the hero. I looked at the story from his point of view, how he had been wronged, how he had a right to do what he had to do, and justified his behavior. And the smoking man followed. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of, how did you land your first professional screen role? Did a few little things when I was working at the National Theatre School of Canada. This is in Montreal. There wasn't much happening in terms of film production, but there were a couple of things and every once in a while I would fill in, but it was nothing very significant. And then basically I was either directing or teaching acting for maybe 20 years after that. And finally, actually, it came out of learning more about acting. I did some acting classes to learn more what other teachers were doing. And found, well, yeah, I wasn't that, that bad at it. So I thought, all right. So I got an agent and she put me out for stuff. I guess my first biggest role would be in, um, what's the name of it? Uh, David Cronenberg um, uh, was one of his first major, major features. And I played the ambulance driver. Dead zone. Dead zone. Dead zone. Okay. (laughs) So I played the ambulance driver and it was pretty interesting because we shot at Niagara on the lake, which was in the winter. It was about 30 below zero. Fortunately, I was the ambulance driver, which meant between takes, I could go in my ambulance. But the poor background people were just out in the freezing cold. It was quite horrific. Anyway, I didn't know much about film production at the time. And I don't know how I did with my four or five lines, but neither, none of my four or five lines survived the cutting room floor. So you can watch that film as long as you want. You won't see me ever. So I'm not even in it driving the ambulance. How was David Cronenberg back in those days? Have you worked with him since? I have not worked with him since. I'd love to. I found him very personable. Found him, you know, even though I, my role was quite minor. Although I guess because of my theater work as a director, I was not a minor person. But the role was quite minor. And right. I found him very companionable and easygoing. And He's one of my favorite folks to listen to just talk about films in general. He's got a lot of interesting opinions. Yeah, I would think. So when it comes to the X-Files specifically, was that just a typical job so you got called up by your agent you got to read for this role yeah i mean i was really busy i was running my acting school at the time and just doing some gigs as they came along and so i was called for this thing about alien abduction so that wasn't going anywhere i didn't think but anyway I didn't actually read for the role I played. I read for the senior FBI agent. I mean, I don't know how well you might remember. Skinner? No, this was before Skinner even came on the show. I've forgotten the name of the character, but this that first interview in the pilot with Scully and the head of the FBI, and there's two people sitting beside him. One of them was the senior FBI agent, and he had three lines. And I didn't get that part. I Good. got this other part with no lines. <laughs> yeah, we've laughed about that a lot over the years, but I laugh about it more than he does. <laughs> 
with the when you learn about the character that you're going to play on the x-files what is your personal approach to the character to sort of fill him out well the um, basic principle of my technique of acting is there is no he there's only me so it's going to be me doing what he what this character does so i'm not trying to find the essence of some other being which is a good thing because i don't actually believe in essence anyway i'm trying to find out what would make me do what this character does how would my life be different how would my background be different what would put me in this situation to do these things so that i want to do them with x-files of course i knew nothing of the they had no Bible for X-Files. I don't know. So many series now have a Bible with character descriptions and plot lines and whatever. I don't, they didn't have anything like that. I don't think they had any idea who this non-speaking person who smoked cigarettes was going to be or if he was going to be. I mean, <laughs> that was just something that looked good for the first episode. So let's put him in there. And, you know, then months went by and I didn't hear anything further. And finally, I got a call for a, what they then called a senior agent or something. A CIA agent. So I said, okay, sure. And only then did they decide, let's make that the same person. Let's have him smoke. And then by then, Chris Skinner was in the show. Then they began to develop the thing with Skinner smoking in his office. And then gradually the whole thing evolved. It's always interesting to hear as a fan, you know, you see the finished product and it looks like some grand plan, but really (laughs) everybody's just flying by the seat of their pants. I don't think it's true in every show, but it's a lot of that was the reason for the success of the show is that they could go with what was working. They weren't locked in a plan. And a lot of what my character developed was because Jillian got pregnant. So what are they going to do? She's pregnant. Oh, I know. We'll have her kidnapped by aliens and and we'll start this whole abduction thing. And who's going to be dealing with that? Oh, that guy who smoked, you know, (laughs) and and here we go. hilarious at what point along the ride did you realize oh man this really has some steam people are actually liking this maybe this is something to this yeah it's probably in this it, for me it was in the second season the episode called one breath which morgan and wong had written and it was a really big scene for me and uh, big stuff for me and and that was kind of where the character kind of really entered into the story but still, it was was still not sure it was going to go big time. It was it was early stages of the internet, and there was this great number of dedicated fans who watched it every Friday night and talked to each other afterwards and wrote their fan fiction and did all their stuff. You know, the th- it might not have survived without them because it wasn't an immediate success. Right. But that had this following, and this following grew, and then. Ooh, and then finally Fox decided to put it on Sunday night in prime time and then we're away. So I spoke with Stephen Williams, who was one of your co-stars on the show. Yeah. And he really enjoyed you guys' time together. He thought that maybe Mr. X, since, you know, the name of the show was called The X-Files, of course, that the character got cut off a bit too soon because of some things that were going on behind the scenes, maybe. Did you hear anything about that or do you know any, what he could be referencing? I don't have any gossip on that. Okay, uh, okay. <laughs> No, I, I know, stra- you know, strange things happen, like, you know, killing off Deep Throat really early. And well, I tell you, there was some there were some strange things that didn't happen. There was this episode that you might, might remember called Musings of a Cigarette Smoking Man, which had this all this a lot. This about the background of my character, for better or worse. In that episode, as it was written, I was supposed to kill Frohiki. And when Chris Carter found that out, he <laughs> he got very upset and he would not allow that to happen because that was the whole lone gunman story was right 
gone. But these other writers didn't care. So then the ending of the episode was not the same as the writers imagined. And so their little trick was to have the ending of my story that I write within the episode be changed. And that was their way to get back at Chris for having changed to their ending. Are you following this? Yes, yeah, 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 yes. I'm, I'm with you. Just... Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so how is Chris's directing style? Is there much room for improv? Is it by the book? How would you describe working with him on the X-Files? It's always been a pleasure. The only thing I've kind of felt is he, and maybe because he was relatively new to it when I first started, was that he did more coverage than he needed, you know, so things took longer. You know, and we had a lot of more repeats. And it was fun. In in my most recent book, I talk about directors asking actors to do something that looks good, but really may not be motivated. So in, you know, in one of the, in one of the last reboots, the car I'm in runs over Skinner and he's lying under the car. And Chris asks me, because I'm sitting in the car, asks me to look in the exterior rear view mirror. And I'm thinking to myself, I've just run over somebody. Why am I looking in the exterior rear view mirror? So I said, why do I do that, Chris? He said, for the shot. <laughs> and it's true, it worked. It was a good shot. <laughs> but as an actor, those are the things you have to deal with. Okay, so what, how do I justify that as an actor? You know, but... What were your thoughts, I guess I should say, initially when the series was revived, when you got that news? I was not totally surprised because so many fans had kept saying when's the next movie coming or when's they seem to be sure that something more had to happen but i was doubtful mm -hmm. i was doubtful. and if anything i would have expected another movie more than another series but anyway it happened and for me why not you know <laughs> right it's fun to do it's good coverage it's good publicity it's good money what well, i'm in checks all the boxes yeah, exactly. <laughs> So, William, you've mentioned your uh, acting school several times. Hypothetically, I'm a student of yours. Day one, lesson one. What do you want me to walk away with? That's a good question. Uh, bringing yourself to the work. But how do we do that? For instance, I have this simple exercise I do on the first day often. I put a put a cup on a chair in the middle of the room. And then each student has to come in, pick it up and to leave. That's all they have to do. But that's a lot harder than you think. Yeah. Because they always want to act. They always want to be something. They always want to be doing something. Like I remember once uh, we were shooting something and there was another shoot going farther away. And in this other shoot, there were people, background people, walking along a a street or something walking along a walkway and so they would walk along the walkway then they would cut they'd go back to the beginning and they'd shoot it again you know as they repeat the shots mm -hmm. and i could tell every time which way was the way they were acting and which is the way they were just going back <laughs> to number ones because they would walk now i am walking uh, now i'm just going back and <laughs> Getting that simple relaxation of being yourself in an imagined situation is is kind of at the core of what an actor does. So there's kind of exercises to try and lead into that. Is there a moment that it clicked for you as an actor? Some of the things that you just mentioned teaching, can you recall when you sort of practiced those yourself for the first time and the light bulb went off? There was certainly a progression of, of understanding and experience. I'm just trying to think of light bulb moments. Uh, the light bulb moments are probably negative. When I look at it, I look at something that I might have shot where, where I thought I was playing some kind of character and I just didn't look very natural. And I remember discussions with people about, because this whole idea of character, are you trying to be a character? It took some people to know talking to some people, some other actors, trying it, feeling it, to really come to terms with my notion 
that you don't play a character. You do what the character does, and if you do what the character does, you'll be the character. And you do it the way you would do it if you did it, even though you wouldn't do it. Got it. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) The method acting is a term that gets thrown around a lot, and it, it seems to me, I've spoken to a decent amount of actors, that each person sort of has their own take on it or their own method. What does that mean to you? Is that something that you use in your toolbox? Well, what we've just been talking about is is certainly part of the method, that it's you and you're not trying to be another character. So in that sense, yes. Where I differ from them or from some of what I see and read is the huge emphasis on how to create emotion and and I'm, I don't even like watching it, you know? I'm so tired of, I like, I love detective crime drama, but I don't need to see the scene where they tell the parent that their son has just died. I don't need to see that. But the truth is, it's not real what they do. Because when you tell the person, yes, in these scenes, the actor who's done all their emotional preparation then does their big emotional scene. Judy Dench was in one of those and she didn't, she didn't bat an eye. She just went cold and went boom. People don't react like that right away. I mean, I remember when my girlfriend and I at the time, I had some skin condition and the doctor thought it might be AIDS. But she didn't cry. She said, okay, we've got to work this out. We've got to deal with it. You know? right. Yeah, eventually you cry, but not necessarily right then. Right. There's, more of, there's a time for processing in your brain before the emotion kicks in, you know? Yeah. Like, who do I have to invite for the fu- to the funeral? Yeah. Stuff like that comes up. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the emphasis on, on emotional memory and whatever, I find overblown and i agree with at least one of the teachers that i was reading but quite often it just stops there instead of leading the person into action it's what the character does it's what you do that's important and it's not what you feel we're not interested really in what you feel we're interested in what you do in acting classes we love it oh my god look at the emotion that's personal and it's true i'm i'm impressed i'm impressed with that as an acting teacher in acting class right but not necessarily in the movie when you zoom out and take a look the entirety of your career be it directing or acting what's the most challenging project that you've worked on that just kept you up at night pulling your hair out uh well i could make the blithe comment say the next one when i'm working <laughs> on now that's not necessarily untrue <laughs> no. no it's not because of the play that we're doing we no man's land is one of the most challenging plays in the english language i think no, there have been times when I, and, and this is where you, when you ask, do I prefer acting or directing? There have been occasions, at least one that I think can be more than one, whereas an actor, I'm with a director that just wants to dictate a performance, wants mm. you to do this now, do that there, do, and just imposes, and doesn't even impose well. I don't, that's just so frustrating. I don't know, and how do you, how do you deal with that? Up to a point, you can deal with a director who gives you direction that you don't agree with. As one of the directors at the National Theatre School once said, one of the artistic directors said to a student, said, no, no, don't argue with the director. Just listen to the director, say thank you very much, and do what you were going to do anyway. <laughs> Fix it in post. As an actor, you're, you're responsible for what you do out there. So you take from a director what you can use. And, and if you can't, you can't. So. so what would you say has been the best piece of acting advice that you've received throughout your career? I would say it's, I mean, I think I'm repeating myself now, but I would say it's, 
Here's how I describe it in my book, for what it's worth. When we were kids and we were at the summer cottage, we had one day in the summer where we were allowed to do anything we wanted. It's the day we could do whatever we liked. We didn't have to do our chores. We didn't have to do this. We could do anything we wanted to do. My mother never tired of telling her friends that we ended up doing exactly the same things as we always did. But the difference was we felt like we were doing exactly what we wanted to do. And this right. is what you want as an actor. You want to be coming onto the stage or into the shot and feeling you're going to do exactly what you want to do. And what you want to do just happens to be, to be or not to be. That is the question, whether there's no room in the mind to suffer the slip or whatever the role is. That's what you want to do. And that that's the direction you try to work to get to. Well said. I'm not going to keep you all evening, William, but just, I, just to wind down here, I can't let you go without asking you how was it working with Lawrence Olivier? I didn't work directly with Lawrence. I mean, I worked with Sir, which we called him at the time. I worked in his company, but I didn't actually do any plays that he was either directing or acting in. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay. So what are some of your personal favorite films? Say you're sitting down for the evening to watch a movie. What are you watching? Uh, people always ask me that question, and I'm never prepared for that. Because <laughs> I've got a whole, I've got a, a bunch of, of DVDs that have just come in that we sh I shouldn't have got. I mean, I should have got, actually, I, what, I lie. I should have got them a month ago because they're screeners for the Screen Actors Guild. And oh. I should watch them before I vote and then tear them up. But they, because of the, the pandemic and the border between the U.S. and Canada, they actually arrived last Friday, a whole pile of DVDs. So we've got all the Oscar nominees, <laughs> all of those. So we're settling in for quite a bit of watching. But so far, I have to admit the Oscar favorite of mine was West Side Story. I just, just loved it. I've heard great things about it. I haven't seen it myself, though, but I have heard good things. Yeah. What's on the horizon for you to wrap up here? Is there anything in the pipeline you got coming? Well, my book, my new book called On Acting and Life is released on May 3rd. So that's kind of the, the major thing I've got going. Season two of Upload on Amazon has actually just been released recently. It's So it's playing now. And we will shoot season three in the summer. The Midnight Club, which I just sort of bookend now as a mysterious character in the background, has, has not been released yet, but will shortly. It's Netflix. And season two, my character is supposed to become a major part of that story. That's Grady Hendrix, Midnight Club. Mike Flanagan. Mike, yeah, Mike Flanagan. Yeah, he's adapting Grady Hendrix's The Midnight Club. Oh, yeah, that yeah, could be. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's... I'm looking forward to that one. I didn't, I didn't even know you were in there. Should have done my research. <laughs> it's, it's quite brief right now, but it's supposed to get better. You're very good at mysterious background characters. <laughs> so I think it'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, William, it's been a pleasure to talk to you, man. Like I said, uh, looking forward to reading the book and thank you for giving me some of your time. My pleasure. Nice to talk to you. Welcome to the night. You think you know Night Demon? Then the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast is for you. Step into the darkness as we peel back the curtain to give you an unprecedented, all-access look into the mind and the heart of the demon. We're talking band history, song analysis, studio anecdotes, stories from the road. It's everything a diehard Night Demon fan could want and more. This is the only place to learn the inside scoop, the deep dive trivia, the untold tales from the band members themselves and those closest to the Night Demon story. Need more? The sacred Night Demon crypt will be pried open to reveal demo recordings that have never before seen the light of day. All with in-depth commentary by the band and the people who were there for the writing and recording process. 
This is a gold mine, a treasure trove of all things Night Demon. Head over to nightdemon.net or wherever you listen to podcasts.